If you grew up in the 80s, 90s, or early 2000s, then chances are your sleep paralysis demon takes the form of a Stephen Gamble illustration. You know the ones I'm talking about. His art is one of the key reasons that these scary stories to tell in the dark series became so wildly popular among kids. In addition to containing some of the most haunting folk tales, myths, and legends the world has ever known. Gamble had an almost supernatural ability to take the most mundane subject matter and transform it into something that you'd see in your nightmares for weeks on end. Even something as simple as a little girl holding a baby can leave you feeling unsettled. With this in mind, I decided to post a poll last week asking you all which of these series iconic monsters you'd least want to confront. And I was surprised to see that the pale lady not only got the most votes, but absolutely dominated her competition. Out of more than 30,000 voters, half of you said that she was the most terrifying. And listen, I'm not saying she isn't scary. I mean, look at her. She'd be the only woman on Tinder with zero matches. The reason I was so surprised was because when you actually read the story she's featured in, she's not nearly as bad as these other monstrosities, least of all Harold, who you can learn all about by watching last week's episode. With that in mind, I want to spend today refreshing your memories on who exactly the Pale Lady is by reviewing the tale that Alvin Schwartz wrote about her, comparing it to her appearance in the recent film adaptation of his series, and looking at the mysterious true story that he used as inspiration. The Pale Lady appears in a story called The Dream, which can be found on page 53 of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark 3. Kinda crazy that two of the most iconic monsters in the series didn't come along until 10 years after the first installment. The Dream follows a girl named Lucy Morgan, a traveling artist who found inspiration by visiting the country's most beautiful and historic cities. She had been staying in a lovely little town called Gardner for about a week when she was ready to move on to the next city called Kingston. The plan was to wake up bright and early the next morning and head out. But that night, she had a dream that changed everything. In the dream, she was walking up a long, dark staircase, and at the top was an old wooden door cracked open just enough for some light to shine through. She arrived at the top of the staircase, pulled the door open the rest of the way, then entered the next room. And what she saw there made her stomach drop. The carpet was cut into large squares that appeared to be trap doors and the windows were fastened shut with thick iron nails sticking out of them. Still in her dream, Lucy went to sleep inside of that bedroom, but she was suddenly woken up when she felt someone leaning over her bed. When she opened her eyes, a pale woman was standing over her. She had ghostly white skin, wide black eyes, and stringy black hair. Lucy was too petrified to move, but the woman didn't try to hurt her. She just whispered into Lucy's ear, This is an evil place. Flee while you can. Then she put her hand on Lucy's arm, pushing her toward the exit. And in that moment, Lucy woke up. As you can imagine, there was no chance of her falling back asleep after a dream like that, so she just laid in the fetal position for hours, sweating, trembling, and waiting for the sunrise to save her. When the morning did finally arrive, Lucy told her landlord that her plans had changed. 
She didn't go into detail about why, but she said that she couldn't bring herself to go to Kingston anymore. That's when the landlord suggested she go to Dorset. It was a pretty town, not unlike Gardner, and it wasn't too far. Unable to get the pale lady's warning out of her head, Lucy figured that any town would be better than the one that she planned on, so she packed her car up with her things and headed out to Dorset. After arriving, she asked some locals about where she could find a cheap room for rent, and a man pointed her to a house at the top of a nearby hill. It looked pretty nice, and the man said that the old woman who owned it was as sweet as can be, so Lucy figured that she'd check it out. It turned out the stranger was right. The owner was a short, plump, motherly woman who seemed happy about the prospect of having some company for a week or so, so she offered to show Lucy the room right then and there. Lucy followed the woman up a long, dark staircase, and she thought, this looks awfully similar to the one from my dream, but she forced that thought out of her mind because a lot of antique houses look the same. But when she stepped into the room, she stopped dead in her tracks. It was the room from her dream, complete with carpet squares that looked like trap doors and the windows that were nailed shut. The old woman politely asked Lucy what she thought, and Lucy replied that she wasn't so sure, because apparently she just doesn't have survival instincts, and the woman said that she would leave her to think about it and go make them some tea. A few minutes went by when there was a knock on the door. Lucy opened it, expecting to see the old woman on the other side, but she was wrong. Standing in front of her was the pale lady from her dream, with the same ghost white skin, black eyes, and stringy black hair. This time, she didn't wait for the lady to say a word. Lucy Morgan grabbed her things, ran out the front door, and never looked back. Isn't it wild how a story where nothing of major consequence happens can be so unsettling? Like, let's be honest, if you were to list out the events of this plotline, it'd be boring as hell. Girl has scary dream, girl moves to a new town, girl sees ghost, girl runs away. It's all about the delivery of those details, which Schwartz gives just enough of for the story to make sense, then allows our fear center to do the rest. And similar to the Herald story, we're left with some questions that the darkest parts of our imagination has to come up with answers to. So the stronger your imagination, the scarier the story becomes. Who is the pale lady? Does she work for the old woman or is she maybe a victim? And if the latter, what exactly did the old woman do to her? And if Lucy didn't run away, would she have suffered the same fate? And let's not forget those trapdoor carpet squares. I'm having a hard time picturing what that would even look like and the horrors that could be contained underneath. But do you see what I meant in the intro? The pale lady herself is really not all that scary, unless you're judging her by her appearance you misogynists. My bad, I didn't realize I was telling a story to Andrew Tate. I've personally always found the pale lady to be a big, beautiful woman because I judge by what's on the inside. That's right, ladies, I'm a hero. Nah, for real though, the pale lady actually is kind of a hero. If it weren't for her warning, Lucy Morgan would have probably drank some drugged tea and woke up in a cage. But I can't say the same for her movie counterpart, though I do think the filmmakers incorporated the caring element of her character in a really creative way. Just like how we all read these stories as kids and were scared of them coming true, the film's characters have the same fear. Only in their case, the stories actually are coming true as a result of the curse of Sarah Bellows. When it comes to the Pale Lady, reminiscent of how Lucy Morgan had that premonition, Chuck is also visited by the woman in his dreams and she delivers a very similar message. That fat Pale Lady keeps whispering, this is an evil place, run away while you still can.
And like how Lucy's dream occurs in a very specific room, Chuck's happens in the Red Room, which he caught a glimpse of when he was hiding in the old Bellows house. But in his desperate attempt to avoid any rooms with a slight red hue, or that even have the word red in their name, he dooms himself to the exact fate he fears when he's caught trespassing in the psych ward at the biggest hospital I've ever seen and triggers an alarm. Suddenly, the pure white walls turn red, and at the end of the hall, he sees her. The pale lady slowly walks toward him, hardly able to contain her excitement. Chuck tries to run away, but the halls are a maze, and every exit is locked. Before long, he finds himself surrounded on all sides by the pale lady, and she wraps her arms around him, absorbing his entire being into hers and disappearing before his friends can save him. Now, the reason I say this was a creative twist on her character is that the Pale Lady doesn't actually seem evil here, nor does she do anything violent in the movie. She basically hugs the guy to death in what appears to be an attempt to calm him down. It's almost like she cares about his well-being. And when you consider her role in the original story, I think that makes more sense than if they would have made her an evil, bloodthirsty monster. But remember, when Alvin Schwartz wrote this series, he didn't come up with these tales off the top of his head. He scoured the globe for the spookiest tales he could find and then adapted them perfectly to give children nightmares for decades. And the Pale Lady comes from a bizarre, sad, and supposedly true story from the 19th century. Now, for those who want to research these stories on their own, you can actually find the sources that Alvin Schwartz used in this section called Notes and Sources. It's found in the back of every book. In the case of The Pale Lady, Schwartz mentions two sources of inspiration, the folklore of prophetic dreams and a haunting experience that English writer Augustus Hare details in his autobiography. We'll start with the autobiography because it'll segue nicely into the discussion of prophetic dreams. So just to be very clear, the author in question, Augustus Hare, did not have any otherworldly experiences himself. He was told this story in the 1800s by a family friend whom he considered an aunt, Mrs. Gaskell. Mrs. Gaskell was told this story by a family friend of her own, Mrs. Hibbert, who in turn heard it from someone who knew the victim personally. My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid is going with the girl who saw Ferris pass out at 31 Flavors last night. I guess it's pretty serious. And the only reason that Hibbert shared it with Gaskell was because Mrs. Gaskell was a writer, so Mrs. Hibbert trusted that she would remember it accurately, and apparently Gaskell felt the same way about Augustus Hare. I know, that's a lot of names to remember, but I have good news. You can forget all of them immediately, and it won't make a difference. I just wanted to be transparent about where exactly this story comes from, because it's buried deep in Augustus's autobiography, and it's pretty random that he included it at all. Anyway, this true story follows a young woman named Mrs. Alcock, who I'm going to call Elizabeth, and her husband, Major Alcock, who I'll be referring to as the Major. Elizabeth and the Major were a newly married couple, and the Major was around 10 to 15 years older than Elizabeth. He was an accomplished, wealthy man who desired a pretty young thing for his wife. Fortunately, he was actually a great husband. Every need that Elizabeth had was satisfied, and she had nothing but positive things to say about him to her neighbors. She still did her fair share of the work for the household, though. The major had bought them a large estate in Leicestershire, and she was responsible for taking care of the place. She was happy to do it, but during hunting season, the estate would be open to hunters looking for lodging, and when things got busy, it could be a lot to manage on her own. 
own. According to Elizabeth's neighbors, the two old women who Augustus refers to as the Mrs. T, as in two Mrs. T's, she was a bright, talkative, beautiful young lady when she and the major first moved in. But over the next couple of months, her demeanor changed entirely. Her eyes always looked dreary and sad, her skin was pale, and eventually she stopped interacting with her neighbors. This had been going on for a while when the Mrs. T's decided to reach out and ask if something was wrong and how they could help. But even though they expected something to be wrong, they never could have anticipated what Elizabeth told them. Elizabeth told them that since moving to Leicestershire, she'd been seeing a man's face everywhere on the hunters who stay at the lodge, in her dreams, she couldn't escape it. We, the readers, are never given a description of the man's face, but we're told Elizabeth described it in great detail to the Mrs. T, lucky them, and she told them that she knew he was going to hurt her. She would later tell the doctors the exact same thing, and they diagnosed her with phantasmagoria, which sounds like the name of a strip club for ghosts, but is basically when someone has dreamlike visions. You see, before marrying the major, Elizabeth had lived a cushy life and was devoid of responsibility. Her parents were extremely wealthy and every one of her wants and needs was taken care of whenever she asked. The doctors claimed that her sudden transition to a new location where she was immediately burdened with all these responsibilities was more than her brain and body could handle or, as Hare puts it, over fatigue and unwanted excitement had settled into this peculiar form of delusion. Well, the Major had no problem dropping everything for his wife's health, so they closed up the estate and went traveling abroad, which appeared to have completely cured her delusions, at first. It was a few months into their trip, when they arrived in Rome, that she had another incident. As she was getting out of the carriage to enter the hotel, she saw the mysterious man's face in the crowd. Poor Elizabeth screamed, fainted, and had to be carried into the hotel room. The major called in some doctors who diagnosed her with over-fatigue from her travels, and she was ordered to spend the next few weeks resting. Once again, this appeared to do the trick, but Elizabeth was caught in a kind of loop. Every time she would start to feel better and get active again, she would see the man's face in a crowd or on a random passerby and go into one of these attacks. This continued for about nine months until the spring of 1848 when the Major had to leave Rome on a personal matter. He knew that his wife wasn't up for any kind of travel, so he asked her to stay in the city. Given her unstable track record, she was terrified at being away from him, but all her begging and pleading did was convince him further that she couldn't handle it, so the Major left without her. He returned to Rome in just two weeks, but when he arrived, he learned that Elizabeth was missing. There was no trace of her at all. She never checked out of her hotel, but all of her belongings had been taken out of the room. And I'm sorry to say that the Major never got an answer about what happened to her although there were some rumors. On the day of her disappearance, some women who knew Elizabeth were walking in front of the Archbasilica of St. John Lateran when they saw a carriage driving rapidly toward the Porta San Giovanni. And in this carriage was Elizabeth. She was sobbing and wringing her hands as if her heart was breaking, and by her side sat a strange man with the very same face that she had so often described. So this is the story that Alvin Schwartz claims he used as inspiration when he wrote The Dream. But if you're like me, you're probably thinking, how? I mean, the stories don't have that much in common besides the ominous figure appearing in a dream, and the dream portion is only mentioned once in Hare's writing. But I guess that's really all it takes, right? A seed of inspiration can grow into something entirely new. 
Besides, Schwartz also had centuries worth of folklore and myth about prophetic dreams to refer to as well. If you're a longtime watcher of Messed Up Origins, then you might even be able to name two myths that belong in this category. My Norse nerds watching will no doubt think of the dreams that Odin's son, Baldr, had about his own death. Our old Norse texts essentially describe Baldr as the personification of perfection, and him being killed by Loki and Hod ultimately leads to Ragnarok the apocalypse. But those more into Greek myth might remember the story of Queen Alcyone and her husband, King Ceyx. When Ceyx was killed in a shipwreck, Hera felt so sorry for Alcyone that she ordered Morpheus, the god of dreams, to alert the queen of her husband's death. So Morpheus disguised himself as the king and visited Alcyone in a dream to deliver this message. But in my opinion, the tales that Schwartz and Hare tell have more in common with English and Celtic folklore than mythology specifically the folklore of night hags. Night hags, or night mara, are demons or witches in Celtic folklore that could absorb a person's life force while they slept. They would enter the bedroom at night and sit on their chests, crushing them to the point of near suffocation. In fact, their name, mara, was an old English word meaning crusher, and the term nightmara is where we get the word nightmare. Looking at this through a modern lens, it seems obvious that nightmara, or night hags, were a symptom of sleep paralysis. There's the inability to move, the crushing weight on the chest, and the ineffable terror the victims experience. Of course, people living prior to the 1900s had no idea there could be a scientific explanation for it, so naturally, they assumed witchcraft was to blame and tried placing charms by their beds to ward them off like horseshoes wrapped in flannel and hagstones. And while this may have worked for some due to the placebo effect, most victims were totally unaware of the factors affecting their quality of sleep and continued to suffer from sleep paralysis as a result. Then, between the utter exhaustion they felt and the fear that supernatural powers were at play, their condition would only grow worse. Their mental state would deteriorate so that their delusions would exacerbate and they would waste away, appearing fatigued, pale, and skinny as a skeleton just like how Elizabeth is described. And when you think about it, that's pretty similar to the pale lady. I mean, she did have more cushion for the pushing, but there's definitely some overlap. She almost appears to be a victim of sleep paralysis as well as a perpetuator of it simultaneously. But that's the beauty of Schwartz's writing. Very few of his stories fall neatly into any category, and they always leave us with more questions than answers. Speaking of questions, I want to ask you to share your thoughts on this tale and these scary stories to tell in the Dark series. Did the Pale Lady haunt your dreams as much as she apparently haunted other members of our community? If not, which tale from this series did? And should I talk about it in a future episode? I personally love diving into the messed up origins of this series, but I want to know your thoughts if it should be a staple of the channel. So let me know by hitting up Messed Up Origins on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Links to all of those are in the description of this episode. Then remember to sacrifice those five star and follow buttons to the gods to support our show and get new episodes sent to your device every Friday morning. I'll see you all again next week when I dive into another classic horror story that you won't want to miss. Until then, my name is John Solo, and remember, John shot first.